Chapter 7. Assessment-Capable Visible Learners Recognize Their Learning and Teach Others. I've got one more skill to get for this level, and then I'll be ready for the next challenge. Gabriella could be talking about an online game, but in fact, she's discussing her computer coding skills. The seventh grader selected learning to code as a way she wanted to use her makerspace time. For 90 minutes each week, students at her middle school engage in a variety of self-directed explorations. Some of her classmates meet up in the makerspace that is set up in the cap school cafeteria, or large tables are filled with equipment, tools, batteries, cardboard, plastic tubing, and more than a few digital devices. Some of the students in there are thinking and tinkering, while others have a clear project in mind. Gabriella wants to experiment with robotics, but discovered that she didn't have the skills and knowledge she needed to create an idea she had. I, wrote, I read Rosie Revere Engineer, BD 2013, to my little sister, and I want to make a little robot for her that carries her crayons, she said. First, I figured out I needed to know how to use the 3D printer because I have to make some parts, she said, waving a sketch to show her idea. But then I had to know some coding, like how to make it move. Gabriella, with assistance from her teacher, found an online tutorial to learn the basics of coding. So I already did sequences, variables, and loops. And next I'm doing conditionals, she explained. She then glanced at the time on her smartphone. I gotta go though. Not much time left today and I wanna get this done. Gabriella is an assessment capable visible learner. She has a clear sense of where she is in her learning process, where to get help and feedback, and where she is headed. The clear and linear nature of the online program is designed to give feedback and indicate that she has successfully completed a skill. As educators, we can replicate similar processes in face-to-face, -face, as well as in online environments. In fact, it is likely you have experienced this. Perhaps you were in a scouting program and progressed through requirements for badges. Or you may have played a sport, starting first with mastering the basics, before moving on to more technically challenging skills. Or you may have just decided on your own to learn something, found some resources, and put your mind to it. Nancy's seven-year-old granddaughter and her dad are systematically working their way through a knot-tying book at the moment. An element of each of these examples has in common is that the learner has a sense of what comes next, whether it is turning the page to the next badge, moving to the next item on the checklist, or successfully completing an online module. They know when they have learned something. A second element held in common is that there is some kind of assessment signaling your success. You may have performed a skill for a coach, taken a quiz, or tied the knot so that it looked like the one in the book. The first portion of this chapter is all about assessment, but before you groan, understand that the kinds of assessments we are talking about are specifically targeted to inform the learner. After all, how could we write about assessment-capable visible learners without devoting lots of space to assessment. In the second part of the chapter, we discuss another indicator, which is the ability to teach others. A crucial measure is that your students are clear that the standard of knowing is the ability to teach others, 
not understanding when explained by others. William Hem, 2003. We explain the importance of peer learning and constructing opportunities where students get to teach one another about what they know. Formative evaluations that inform students. The practice of formative evaluation with students has been shown to be of benefit to teachers in making decisions about the next steps of teaching as measured by gains in student learning. With an effect size of 0.90, it is worthy of our attention. However, the power of formative evaluation doesn't reside in the act of administering the quiz, test, or assignment. All of its power lies in, one, whether the student and the teacher understand the results, and two, whether the teacher and the student use the results to take action on future teaching and learning. The effects of formative evaluation are amplified when students are part of the equation. In other words, formative evaluation shouldn't be done only so the teacher can make decisions, even though that's important, but also so that the student can make decisions. These outcomes should be linked such that students can directly benefit from the formative evaluation that occurs, and so that the instructional decision-making of teachers is transparent to students. Seitzkin, Contrary, Wilson, and Edgington, 2012. That's why the clarity and understanding of the reports is so essential to the process. If a student doesn't understand what a report means, he or she can't benefit or take action. Watch a child play a video game and you'll see what we mean. How does she know whether she has made the right move or not? There are clear signals that provide her feedback about her decision. Because she understands it, she can adjust her technique and try a different move. An underutilized method for implementing formative evaluation is practice testing, in which students take short quizzes to understand their command of the subject or topic. These formative practice tests are low stake and not part of the student's grade, as the emphasis here is on practice to gain self-knowledge of learning gaps. A meta-analysis of the effectiveness of formative test practice on advancing student learning reported these findings. Adescope, Trevisan, and Sundararajan, 2017. Lots of practice tests didn't increase student learning. Once is often enough. Feedback paired with the practice test enhances learning. The usefulness of practice tests was strong at both the elementary and secondary levels. The value of formative practice tests is in re students reflecting on their results. Formative practice evaluation is not confined to administration of paper and pencil or online quizzes. Classroom audience response systems are another form and have the added benefit of providing instant results. Sixth grade English teacher Ivan Millen uses an audience response system that allows him to scan student responses on his tablet and display the results. His students have been reading Among the Hidden, Haddocks 2000, about an unnamed future society where food shortages and drought have led to a government decree that families cannot have more than two children. Luke, a third child, must be hidden away so that he will not be captured by the population police. 
Mr. Mellon poses comprehension questions for his students to respond to so that they can gauge their understanding of the book. After taking a five question audience response quiz about the novel, the students in his class analyzed their results and met in teams aligned to the questions. Anna did not answer two of the questions correctly, but was especially puzzled by the fourth question, which asked about a historical allusion to the American Revolutionary War patriot Patrick Henry's statement, give me liberty or give me death. Anna chose to meet with a group of students who had selected the same question so they could build each other's knowledge. Anna and several other students did an internet search of the quote and read background information about it. Oh, I remember this now, she said. We learned about him last year in social studies, right? Anna and the others reaffirmed their background knowledge and tied Henry's act to the protest the children in the novel were planning. Anna later remarked, when I read that Luke found it in an old book, it went right past me. I like the quizzes Mr. Millen gives because it helps me see things I didn't notice the first time. I'm reading chapters 23 and 24 tonight, so I'll look for things about being a patriot. Interpreting their data. Students own their own data, Hattie 2009. And as such, students should be the consumers of their performance results, not just the teacher. However, in practice, that is not always the case. Even with the advent of digital gradebooks, which make it much easier for students to see their own progress. Individual data about progress towards goals not only assists students in making strategic decisions about current learning, but can also signal to them when they are ready for the next challenge. Some of the simplest ways to do so are to have students keep physical or digital data logs that can display results in graph or chart form. For young children, keeping track of their progress on graph paper can help them with their planning. For instance, we use graph paper for students to see what they have accomplished on timed writing events such as power writing. Fisher and Frey, 2007. Students write in three one-minute rounds to build writing fluency and then reread what they have written. They circle errors in spelling, grammar, or content, a self-assessment in itself, and count the number of words written each round. The highest number of words is graphed and kept in their writing folders. Thus, each student is able to see his own progress over an extended period of time as he becomes a more fluent writer. Kindergarten teacher Wendy Sun gave each student in her class a reading data folder for the first semester of the year so they could see goals, track progress, and make decisions about new challenges. Students keep track of their accomplishments using a variety of stickers and stamps, and their teacher uses the folder with them for conferencing. I give them this data sheet so they can see when they are ready for a new one, said the teacher. See figure 7.1. Miss Sun's student Noah was busy with stamping his own data sheet while his teacher was explaining it. Here's how it works, said Noah. When I get all the stamps, I can get a new one. I have one, two, three, four more books to read, and I still need to be able to write two more words before I get a new one. Miss Sun smiled and said, I started using these last year when our school moved to student-directed family conferences. 
It's great to hear the kids explain to their families what they have accomplished and where they're headed next. Public data displays can be useful provided trust has been built and progress has been emphasized. These status of the class displays can track the number of students who are attaining milestones. In some schools, teachers track goal progress, not performance, using color dots. The data includes the number of books read. Students can then compare their own efforts to those of classmates. Seventh grader student Jake looked at the board and said he could see he wasn't spending as much time reading as others in his class. I only got one book read for this quarter. There's a couple of, there's only a couple dots for one to three books. Most of the book dots are for four to six books. He shifted over to a second chart tracking growth toward goals. I looked at mine this morning with my teacher and I'm at 10% of my reading goal. There are lots of dots for 30 to 35% of goals. I gotta step it up. Older students can similarly track their progress on other skills and accomplishments. Some learning management systems and electronic grade books offer statistics on scores relative to the class. A student knowing, for example, that he scored in the lowest 20% of the class on the last science competency provides more information to him than knowing he got a grade of C. While the latter represents an average performance in terms of criteria for the test, the former also provides information about his performance relative to the class. We are not advocating for grading on a curve or publicly displaying this information, but rather in signaling the student that his perception of average may be limited given that 80% of the class outperformed him. These class learning analytics are underutilized but can offer potential for helping students understand their next steps. In most learning management programs, the analytics need to be activated by the teacher. However, this also allows the teacher to build students' capabilities for interpreting the data and planning next steps in their learning. As noted in every chapter, students don't simply show up knowing how to be assessment capable. Their ability to do so is fostered by teachers who seek to build their capacity to be leaders of their own learning. Berger, Rugen, and Woodfin, 2014. In the next section, we will turn our attention to the pedagogical skills of teachers to realize the goal of producing clear-eyed learners who know when they've learned something and are ready to take their next steps. Student-led assessments. Student self-assessments are realized in a variety of forms throughout this book because the ability to self-assess is such a powerful engine for learning. It confirms for students what they have learned. Even better news is that teachers can equip students with tools to determine their own learning. In a previous chapter, we discussed the value of a rubric for students to use as they provide feedback to each other where third graders gauged each other's progress on the development of a mystery. Rubrics can also be used for students to self-assess. For instance, Mark Anthony asks his middle school science students to examine their individual projects against a rubric, highlight the levels they believe they have attained, and then attach their self-assessment to the project. This practice can be quite useful for promoting self-assessment helping students identify what they have learned so they can teach others, 
and also recognize future learning needs. Alternatively, self-assessments can come in the form of series of questions that prompt students to evaluate their learning. Business marketing teacher James Cotton introduced what he called quality assurance questions to his high school CTE students at the beginning of their first course. We learned about the Deming process for quality assurance, explained Diana, one of the students in the program. Plan, do, study, act. Pointing to a large poster on the wall, Diana read her teacher's quality assurance questions. Plan, do I have a clear purpose and objectives? Do, have I developed a sequence of steps to follow? Have I included testing points to see if this is meeting my objectives? Study, what are possible causes of the problems I identify through testing? Act, am I revising my plan and taking action until I am successful? Diana explained that her team was developing a new yearbook product for sale at their school and that she is the project manager. She said, we developed a plan and set up steps like surveying students about price points, features they wanted, and items they could do without. Then we had to meet with the yearbook staff to share our survey results. But then there were some problems. They had all these questions, like we didn't break down the data, so we couldn't tell them about responses by grade level. So then we had to go into study mode. The yearbook staff was our test, and we didn't succeed. Diana's team revised their plan, meeting with the yearbook editor and advisor to determine what they needed to learn and then redesigned the survey. Today in class, we're crunching numbers and then we'll schedule another time to meet with the yearbook editor. That's our next step before we can go forward, said Diana. But here's the weird thing. I've just sort of figured out it works for a lot of projects, not just here, she said. I've got geometry homework tonight and then I'll be doing the same thing to get that done. That Deming guy was pretty smart. Confidence ratings are another means for students to self-assess. Young children can use a fist to five method, anything from a closed hand to all five fingers displayed, to indicate their perceived success at the completion of a task, such as their knowledge level about something they have recently learned. Second grade teacher Leona Simmons introduced this method to her students at the beginning of the year. I teach them some content and then do a check-in, she said. Like, we'd be learning about supply and demand in social studies, and I would ask them to hold a hand close to their chest so just I could see it. They would rank themselves from a fist, no understanding, to five fingers, very confident, about their ability to explain the difference between the two. The teacher said that by the end of the first quarter, most of her students were doing it without prompting. Here's an example. I met with Kendrick this morning about his reading. He had, uh, he, he had selected a little title that was seemed to be a bit of a stretch for him. My face must have looked a little doubtful because he said, it's a five for me, Miss Simmons. I already know a lot about taking care of dogs, the subject of the book. My mom said we can get one after I learn more about how to take care of a dog. I think I can read this and I know what to do if it's hard. The teacher smiled and shrugged. How can I argue with that, she said. Comparative self-assessments. 
Success criteria are vital for students to understand where they are going, but they can also be used to help learners recognize where to go next. Durable success criteria that span the semester or school year lend themselves well for fostering comparative self-assessments of learning. These are rubrics and checklists that transcend a single unit or topic of study and contain quality indicators that are applicable across similar tasks. Among the most common are writing rubrics and checklists for text types, narrative, informative, and argumentative. Ferlazzo, 2010, uses comparative self-assessments with his ninth grade students as they analyze an essay from earlier in the year to one written at the end of the year. After scoring themselves retrospectively, he asks four questions. Look at the scores you gave yourself on both essays. Overall, which essay was your strongest? Why? Look at the scores on your strongest essay. What did you do well? Look at the scores on your other essay. What are three things you need to get better at next year? In what area of writing would you like next year's English teacher to help you with? Inspired by this approach, 10th grade English teacher Salma Quezada asked her students to revisit and compare the first essay of school year to one they had written nine weeks later. Using a format similar to Ferlazzo's, she constructed a checklist inspired by the smarter, balanced, argumentative performance task writing rubric for grades 6 to 11. Her students are familiar with the rubric, having used it for several years in the English classes at their school, figure 7.2. Her students wrote a short reflective piece inspired by questions about where they saw their greatest area of growth and what they targeted for future improvement. The teacher also asked each student to link strategies that had been successful for him or her to plan for improvement. David wrote the following. The place I improved the most was on citations and, attrib and attributions. They were messed up, but I started using the style manual to get them right. The place I need to improve is keeping my claim tight all the way through the paper. I can see how I wandered. What works for me on citations was checking a reference. To make my claim tighter, I need to have someone else read my drafts to see if I'm carrying it through, like a human reference instead of a book one. Comparative self-assessments can create conditions for students to reach their own personal bests. As with athletes who track their own personal records, not just wins, learners should be encouraged to strive for new levels of attainment. As noted in chapter five, our role as teachers is not just to help our students set and meet goals, but to exceed their own expectations of themselves. Martin, 2006, suggests that personal bests are most effective when they meet four questions. Number one, specific in nature. Number two, challenging to the student. Number three, competitively self-referenced. Number four, based on self-improvement. First grade teacher Darius Morris uses personal bests with his students as they build their sight word recognition. The students compete with themselves each day in using flashcards with high frequency words written on them. Students sort the words into piles of known and unknown words while the timer counts down to 60, se 60 seconds. 
Students track their own performance each day, and Mr. Morris always asks, who's PR'd today? to recognize when personal records have been attained. When Juan Carlos raised his hand and said, I did 45 today, my best one ever, the class cheered for him. The practice of tracking personal bests works with older students too. Middle school counselor Jim O'Neill uses personal bests to assist students at his school who struggle with regular attendance. I work with the student and his or her family to set attendance goals and then we track them. For some of my students, it's the realization that they are developing more stamina as they string together longer periods of consistent attendance. High school graduation coach Monique Lewis uses academic personal best approaches with students as they track their grade point averages, GPAs, and of course, completion records. Some of them have low GPAs and aren't sure they can dig themselves out, she said. We set goals, track progress together, and then set new goals each time they reach a new level of personal best, she explained. I've been amazed at what many of them have accomplished just by keeping track of their own gains. It shifts their attention away from competing with others and redirects their attention where it should be, demanding the best of themselves. Self-grading. One assessment practice commonly used in classrooms is to have students grade each other's work. There are practical benefits to this term in terms of time management, but there is also the belief that learning occurs through a peer evaluation process. Of course, there are confidentiality challenges with this practice and the potential for students to tease others who do not do well. Students have to be taught how to provide feedback that is growth producing and the classroom climate needs to be crafted such that errors are celebrated and not a source of shame. Less common is self-grading, where a student evaluates his or her own performance, but there can be great value in self-grading assignments and tasks, with the benefit being primarily to move learning forward and signal to them what steps they need to take next. The third grade students in chapter two who self-graded their spelling words are one great example. Sadler and Good, 2006, examined self-grading and peer grading in middle school classrooms. When peer grading, the identity of the learner was blinded, so not as to socially influence the peer grader. Importantly, the students had been taught how to grade using rubrics. That's a crucial point. Rubrics are of tremendous value when used properly up front at the beginning of the task, because well-constructed ones provide a clear map of success criteria. They become all the more useful when further applied in peer and self-assessment. However, they are virtually useless when distributed just in before the first assessment. The teacher also independently graded their work, checking for accuracy and offering further feedback. The researchers discovered that the grades of students Award, the grades the students awarded themselves and the others were reasonably aligned to the teacher's evaluation, suggesting that these learners had a good grasp of success criteria. But on unannounced follow-up tests, the students who graded their own work outperformed those who didn't in the study. Why? Totally lost my place. 
Uh, why? The researchers speculate that while the metacognitive benefit of peer and self-grading was strong, the act of examining one's own work offered deeper insight and allowed each learner to make better decisions about their next steps. In the words of one seventh grader quoted in the study, it's felt strange at first, but by the end, I recognized grading is another way of learning. Fourth grade student Ernesto is in a classroom that regularly employs self-grading. He explains that the teacher still checks, so it's not like you can just give yourself an A. We had, but he has noticed the benefits of his own learning. We had math word problems last week and we had to get the answer and explain the reasoning we used, he said. But when I graded my own paper, I had to give myself a two on a four point rubric for some of my answers because I didn't always have some good math reasoning. He showed one example. See, I had the right answer, but this problem was asking for me to prove it and use reasoning. I drew a model with little cubes to show how it could work, but it was only for the beginning of the problem. It wasn't all the way through. It was just where I started. When asked how this had impacted his thinking, he paused for a few moments and then said, well, I know I need to check to see if I can explain it through to the end of the problem, not just to the place I start. Ernesto's teacher, Jamie French, added, when I graded his paper after he did, I saw the same omission he did. So I added feedback about the process he was using to continue his thinking all the way through to the end of the problem. Skillful use of formative and summative evaluation. Formative and summative evaluation play an essential role in signaling learning progress to students, especially when they are actively engaged in viewing data making strategic decisions, and taking action on next steps. These formative and summative evaluations take a variety of forms and include both qualitative values, such as rubrics, as well as quantitative measures that yield numbers. There are a number of ways to check for understanding, such as exit slips, student-led conferences, practice quizzes, story retellings, projects, and oral responses to questions, Fisher and Frey, 2015. But if students are not made a part of the formative evaluation process, learning potential goes unrealized. 11th grade English teacher, Kaya Tricasso, ensures that her students are wholly involved in making decisions about when they have learned something and what their next steps will be simply by adding an extra question to class assignments. After reviewing the success criteria, students submit assignments and exit tickets in one of the four categories. Number one, I'm just learning, I need more help. Number two, I'm almost there, I need more practice. Number three, I own it, I can work independently. Number four, I'm a pro. I can teach others. Ms. Tricasso's formative evaluation system signals to her students that just knowing something isn't enough. The true pinnacle is when you can teach others. While not all of her students reach this stage each and every time, they have a goal in mind that is outside of self. They understand that the standard for knowing, in the words of Willingham, 2003, is to be able to teach others. 
In addition, this simple progression causes students to gauge their own progress, identifying for themselves what the next step should be. Next steps are not always about advancing to a new topic. More often, they are about how the learner takes the next steps toward mastery. Competency-based grading. Most teachers will tell you that grades are given to reflect a student's mastery of a concept or subject. But upon looking deeper, you discover that several non-academic fa factors are in the formula. Let's take a fictional student and call him Bob. Did he bring materials to class? Check. Did he turn in his homework? Sometimes. Did he behave reasonably well in class? Nope. So what's his grade for the course? Naturally, you would say that this isn't enough information and you need to know what his summative evaluations looked like. Yet too often, organization, compliance, and behavior are lumped in with evaluations of learning. This is not to say that these non-academic indicators are unimportant, but rather that when factored in with learning performance, they obscure the signal. And in this model, things quickly turn personal and undermine the relationship between the teacher and the learner. Instead of being able to tie his academic performance to his world history grade, Bob grumbles, my teacher doesn't like me. He's always on my case. That's why I'm failing. Bob only gets more sullen, the resentment builds, and now his teacher really doesn't like him. Bob's learning trajectory looks increasingly dismal, and in the meantime, he continues to externalize as he blames others. In an effort to end negative and ultimately futile cycles like this, more schools are turning to competency-based grading systems. This system focuses on mastery of content and eliminates grading of practice work and non-academic behaviors. Health Sciences High has employed this system for 10 years. Fisher, Frey, and Pumpion, 2011. Students receive grades based on their performance on summative evaluations only, typically between four and six per quarter. In-class assignments and homework are regarded as formative evaluation for both the teacher and the student and do not earn points toward the course grade. Of course, some students don't do the homework. They are teenagers. However, in time, most learn the value of the practice that allows them to master the content. Students are required to pass each summative evaluation, usually a test, essay, or other complex performance task, at a level of 70% or higher. Students who do not meet this threshold receive an incomplete, signaling to them and their family that mastery has not yet been attained. These learners attend tutorials offered at lunchtime and after school and must complete the homework packet, whether for the first time or again, before taking another version of the exam. A decade of observation of a few thousand middle and high school students has led us to these conclusions. With time, most students learn the value of their active participation in their learning. Relationships between teachers and students are healthier because much of the subjective nature of grading has been removed. It's hard to initiate the change to competency-based grading and requires revisiting these policies regularly 
to revise and improve them. Among the changes we have made over the years, we include adding a separate but robust citizenship grade that accompanies each academic grade, strengthening midterms and finals to include cumulative knowledge for the semester, and improving family conferences to marshal support from home as well as school. Students who carry any incompletes at the end of the school year are now confronted with them in summer school. Rather than offer six-week credit recovery courses, it's the incompletes that must be addressed. Therefore, summer school may take four days for some students and longer for others. Historically, we seem to have more summer school incompletes with younger students compared to older ones, which may be an indication of developing self-regulatory skills. By no means do we suggest that in practice, a competency-based grading system is clean and easy. It's messy and hard, but we hope that our students gain a deeper understanding of themselves as, they, as learners and what they need to do to be successful. Peer learning. Assessment-capable, visible learners understand that they have tools at their disposal to progress in their learning. Among the most important resources they have are the peers around them. Learning is often a social act, as we learn in the company of other humans. Even in digital spaces, virtual contact with others is vital. The opportunity to speak or write can serve as a means to clarify one's thinking about a topic. How often have you experienced a heightened sense of your own knowledge, even as you were in the process of explaining it to someone else? This restructuring of one's own thinking is called cognitive elaboration and results when learners explain ideas to each other and discuss any gaps in their understanding. Chi, 2000. The learning conditions in the classroom need to be set such that peer consultations can occur. Pausing lessons so that students can check in with one another can build the habit of conferring with others. These can range from partner checks Take a moment and check with your partner to see if you both have the correct materials you'll need for this project. To more extended peer consultations, our math colleague Joseph Asaf uses a process called peer assisted reflection, PAR, Reinholz, 2015, with his high school students. The premise of PAR is based on the differences between novice, novices and mathematicians in approaching difficult problems. While novices hastily identify one tool and then use it exclusively until the bitter end of the calculations, mathematicians use iterative processes that include analyzing, exploring, planning, implementing, and verifying. Schoenfeld, 1992. Students in Mr. Asaf's classes complete one identified homework problem as a PAR problem, which requires that students write their reasoning as well as the calculations and solution. Students exchange the PAR problem with a partner the following day. Each partner examines the work the peer completed and annotates feedback about processes or solutions. This process typically takes about 10 minutes, at which point the students receive their original paperback, now annotated with new ideas. The teams then discuss the feedback and then make any corrections needed before submitting it. This is what we mean by mathematical thinking, explained Mr. Ossoff. 
Students appreciate seeing how other classmates solved the same problem, sometimes using different processes. It gets them all thinking about how they can think more flexibly and what benefit there is to talking with others. Teaching each other with student think alouds. Think alouds have been used by teachers for decades to model reading comprehension strategies for their students. Davy, 1983. The purpose of a think aloud is to voice the internal cognitive and metacognitive decisions one is making during the act of reading a passage. Fourth grade science teacher Isabel Franklin uses a passage from a science textbook about the differing layers of a canyon's walls, which provide evidence of a geological record over millions of years. She thinks aloud about what she is reading and how this triggers a decision on her part. So as I'm reading this paragraph, I'm getting the urge to put this down in my science journal. There are two things that are nudging me. The first I can, is that I can see that this is an important concept. There's lots of clues like the title of the passage and the photograph that supports it. The second thing that's nudging me is that there's a lot of descriptive information here about the layers. I want a picture, but there isn't a diagram in the book. So I'm deciding to take a pause here and draw a diagram of my own in my notebook. I don't need to be a great artist, but I do need to get the layers labeled in the correct order. I've learned from experience that when I take the time to draw something like this out in my notebook, I remember the information better. Miss Franklin's Think Aloud included why she was choosing to record her notes in this fashion. That is an item that we quite frankly often forget to share with students. Miss Franklin creates opportunities for them to try on their own expert thinking as well, knowing that this is a mechanism for helping students become aware of their own learning, especially in the process of teaching another peer. She uses student think alouds to promote transfer about the learning decisions her students need to make. It's more than plug and chug, she reminds them. Scholars like you know why you're doing something. Miss Franklin keeps a checklist for student think alouds posted in her classroom. See figure 7.3. She posts a question for her students and asks them to think aloud with their partner as they consider what they know and why. Are the top layers of a canyon's wall the youngest or the oldest? How do you know? Bethany and Sam watched the 90-second video on the layers of the Grand Canyon a few times, and then Bethany begins. The narrator said that the sides of a canyon are like a book, and that each of the layers is like chapters in the book. He never said if the top of the rim was the youngest or the oldest, but he said something about the top layers being there before the ancient sea came in. Since he said before, I think that means they would be the youngest. Sam continues, I think so too. I was thinking about what we learned about how water cut through the rock layers. So the top would be the youngest and the bottom would be the oldest. It wasn't in the video, but it was something we read before. I'm thinking about that information when I'm listening to him. By modeling expert decision-making and creating opportunities for students to explain their own learning, they become more adept and assured of their ability to choose strategies and become cognizant of their learning. Teaching each other with reciprocal teaching. 
Reciprocal teaching is a highly effective way to apply comprehension strategies throughout a text and has an effect size of 0.74. Students read collaboratively in small groups using text that has been segmented into passages of a few paragraphs each. At each stopping point, the group has a discussion about what they have just read using four comprehension strategies. Summarizing the passage for key understandings, posing questions about the passage, clarifying unfamiliar vocabulary or concepts, and predicting what the next pas passage will offer in terms of information. Once students have been taught the reciprocal teaching protocol, often estimated to take a few weeks, increased attention should be placed on the nature of the discourse itself as students take on more control. Therefore, the role assignments that may be utilized when first learning the protocol, summarizer, questioner, clarifier, predictor, are faded in order for more natural discussions to occur. The true value of reciprocal teaching is that it affords all members of the group a chance to teach one another and in turn be taught by peers. The sixth grade team at Nelson Mandela Academy spent the early weeks of the school year introducing and reinforcing reciprocal teaching in all their classes. This collaborative effort helped us spread the workload among all of us so that we could use it all year long, explained English teacher Arif Kohari. Once the students learned about the roles and procedures of reciprocal teaching, they were able to use it more flexibly. Social studies teacher Martin Andrews routinely uses it with primary source documents featured in the textbook. We're studying ancient history, and these documents are pretty archaic. They're a lot harder to understand than the rest of the textbook, said Mr. Andrews. To tell the truth, I used to skip these because when I assigned them, the kids didn't understand them. Using the RT protocol has given me a tool to assist with that, Mr. Corey added. What's got me stoked is that I hear my students having conversations with RT even when we're not specifically doing it. That's proof for me that this has become a transfer skill, not just something the teacher makes you do. Conclusion. The takeaway for this chapter is that students, as assessment-capable visible learners, recognize their own learning and are able to teach one another. Of course, students have to be taught how to do so and learn what to do with the information they provide and receive. In essence, Assessment-capable visible learners learn to be reflective and self-aware. They come to understand that their learning is a journey and that there are not bad places to be and that they can be further along. To develop this kind of thinking, teachers have to ensure that their students do not rely exclusively on adults for information about needed areas of additional learning or improvement. Rather, students start to rely on themselves and know how to self-assess, rather than waiting passively for their teacher to tell them when they've learned something. In other words, they're active. They want to know their status so they can improve even further. None of this is going to be accomplished if the tasks teachers assigned are simple or lack complexity. Rich, rigorous tasks allow students an opportunity to struggle, 
to figure out what they still need to learn and when they are ready to move forward. This happens when their learning is visible and when they recognize that there are endless opportunities to learn.